0: This is Content Content, a bi-monthly podcast featuring the people behind the content. I'm Ed Marsh. So our guest today is Hannah Kirk, who uh, is also, more, I guess, maybe better known as the pink-haired content strategist. She and I met in a bar, but uh, it was a it was sanctioned event at the karaoke at La so... Um... Oh
1: yeah, and I sang a very <laughs> unfortunate um, Beyoncé. Uh, Yes, and I was thrown
0: into, um, you know, PowerPoint of Doom or whatever it was, and I had no idea what I was getting myself (laughs) into. Um, So I I was a bit shell-shocked, I think, for part of our conversation, at least. But uh, I think, uh, you know, I think it was a good time overall, despite the embarrassment. Did you, uh, I think this was your first LavaCon conference, is that correct?
1: It was my second, but the first was many, Ah. many, many years previous.
0: Oh, okay. So, you know, we were talking a little bit and it's crazy because it is uh January 12th, 2020. Happy New Year everybody and happy New Year to you, Hannah. Uh just remarking how it is 67 degrees here in Sunny in New Jersey. So, it's uh, you know, I understand where you are. It's a bit more common, but here it's a it's a uh, as I was just saying to my wife, it's a welcome respite for the birds and for us.
1: <laughs> yes, it's not 67 here and we feel like it's extremely freezing cold. At-
0: probably 57 degrees. Huh. Oh, darn. So let, you know, so we know a little bit about you now. We know that you've been to LavaCon a couple of times. We know that you are uh, the pink haired content strategist, but why don't you uh, tell us a little bit more about you and what you do?
1: Sure. So I've been in technical writing for probably about 15 years now, kind of fell into it randomly mm-hmm. out of grad school. Huh. And, Since then, I've started several departments, um, documentation departments, and content strategy departments from scratch at startups and small companies. And yeah, I love advocating for users and doing so with words. It's basically where I come down
0: Nice. So did I mean so you said randomly from grad school. It's interesting because it seems like a lot of people in this career kind of fall into it at one point or another in their career. So, um did I assume that you didn't go to grad school for technical communication or college? <laughs> no. No.
1: Nope. I went yeah, my undergrad is in telecommunication and I learned some hmm. very minor editing like video editing type of um things which back then oh, was so what kind types. of telecom if you don't mind mm. me asking are you and
0: you talk talking about telecommunications
1: are there different kinds i oh. was <laughs> <I'm just> kidding <laughs> it was like a journalistic based oh, tv okay. version um we we actually didn't have that many classes in telecommunication it was more of a general communication degree with a focus in oh okay and then i went from there to a master's degree in what had just been called mass communication but was changing to Media, Technology, and Society at the time, which is essentially the study of media and technology on
0: people. Oh, interesting.
1: And that was before social media. So much of our discussion was around the internet at its core and previous to that, TV. And that was the vast majority of what I studied.
0: Oh, so interesting. So that kind of, I mean, you know, communications degree and then mass communication and media technology must have really positioned you to be kind of where you were at the time.
1: It has strangely come full circle, huh. I will say. As as technical writing has evolved and as my career has evolved, it's it seemed more and more important to evaluate how people are affected by the technology itself because that does interact or mm. impact the interaction that users have with technology and the way they interact affects the words that we use and the way we use them. So it actually has influenced quite a bit how I've evolved in my career and what's been interesting to me, I would never have thought that um, that academia. So at the time when I started, actually, I I didn't realize that academia was so slow. But one of the things that attracted me to working (laughs) in Silicon Valley and technology was the cutting edge aspect. And I was struck when I came to Silicon Valley at how fast it went and how fast everything moved. Because in grad school, we were trying to study the effects of technology on people, but the technology was moving faster than the people or than the academia. Yeah. And so being able to publish mm. a study and then get human factors approval and then go through um, all of the different publishing flows, I guess, in order to get an academic article published. By the time that was published, it was two or three or four years later after the original study was done. And at this point, that really mm. makes almost no sense. I mean, to do a study four years into Facebook's um, existence about how the Internet has affected people <laughs> is really kind of irrelevant. So it was an
0: interesting study. Yeah, I I mean, I guess, well, I mean, I could just imagine that over the four years that it would take to release, like just the changes alone in Facebook, how it's changed, you know, in four years and designs and how people hated designs and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, you know, you're dealing with, with facts that are four years out of date, essentially.
1: Yeah, like measure it exactly because I graduated in 2005 and that was when Facebook was allowing only people with dot edu email address oh wow so i actually in 2005 still had an edu edu email address because i was still in grad school but most of my friends uh-huh. who were my age were also out of grad school and had regular email addresses so they weren't able to get on facebook whereas i was on facebook so they went to my space and oh wow <laughs> So it was like the apex. but in four years from then the iphone came out and i think 2009 so maybe 2008 So, I mean, in that four year span between 2005 and 2008, if you had published anything that wasn't about even related to social media, the landscape between then and 2009 or whatever had changed dramatically. So, pretty dramatic
0: differences. Oh, that's amazing. So, I mean, the I mean, is that something that you still keep, you know, keep your eye on, like to say, oh, okay, you know, do you notice that or people you pay attention, like if people are doing studies in terms of of Facebook, because there's got to be a bunch of stuff out there. There's got to be a lot of fascinating research going on.
1: You know, I've lost track of what academia has done to be honest, because I feel it right now. I see it every mm. single day in my career and around me, and in the people that. Live around me's career. The, everyone here is in the tech industry. I feel like these conversations are happening all the time. And I'm just getting a sense of what's the newest, mm. latest, greatest thing here. And I also see how, you know, because we are in mm. Silicon Valley, a lot of the starts test out their ideas on us. So we see things and apps oh, that maybe yeah. other people don't get exposed to until later. And the way that people interact with those apps, I'm always paying attention to that. And in particular, my children for example, in their generation, the way they interact with technology is so different from the way I've interacted with technology, even though there is a lot of overlap. But the way that they've never actually had to use a mouse in their interactions, they start with tablets and tapping and swiping. Right. I know. It's actually impactful in ways you might not even think about.
0: Oh, my Lord.
1: Yeah. So my children's experience versus mine is dramatically different, but many people in between also very different.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I started, my first computer was a Commodore VIC-20, so uh, that's wow. how far I go back, w- with with a cassette drive, you know, so there mm-hmm. wasn't a mouse, there was, everything was typing, and that was the era where you would get a magazine that had some computer program in it that, uh, you know, or the game or something, and you would spend all this time typing in, and then you'd hit run, and then it would fail, and I was like, well, I'm not going back to check all this code that I typed in, and and I was just like, to hell with it, so he moved on, so, uh, I mean, and that was, well, you know, X amount of years ago now. So, um, you know, just in, you know, I mean, in comparison to your lifetime, you know, my lifetime is a completely different experience.
1: So, wait, go back. You had magazines <laughs> that had code in them for how for a game? You would, type okay, now I in? am old. <laughs>
0: I didn't know about oh, this. Oh my God.
1: I know the descending. Oh my, Yeah. I know the floppy disks. I'd use those, definitely, like the real floppy floppy disks.
0: Yeah, I'm. Wow. Uh, I will actually. My birthday is this coming week, and I'll be. And it'll be. I'm in my late 40s. Let's just put it that way. And there was wow. magazines called Bites. I mean, I can forget what is a bite back then. And I mean, there was Computer Shopper was like a, a like a, like a thick as a manual, but there were magazines back then because you didn't have there was no way to transfer files. So, you know, you would basically go get this magazine and it would say, oh, here's a, here's some game that you can type in. And you would literally type in the lines and lines and lines of code. And of course, because they were humans too, they would, like the next month, they would post, oh, in this thing, here's the code that we got wrong. So then, you know, you, you would not be only debugging what you had typed. And I was what, 10 years old? So it wasn't like I was a great typist. And okay. then they would say, oh, here's a bug in the thing that we put in. And I'm like, I am just not doing this so um you know so that's a wonderful trip through history and now you know i i'm talking to you via the internet which we'd never even thought of as a thing back then so you know you know just in the span of a lifetime you went from phones that were on a cord on the wall to me talking to you wirelessly across the country it's it's on you know at zero cost you know it's not even like back then you had to pay to you know pay for phone calls so so ironically, the call dropped as we're talking about the miracles of modern technology. But uh, I guess my point is, I started, you know, in the 70s with a computer that had no mouse because mouses didn't exist. And now your kids have iPads and they don't need a mouse because they can use their finger. It's, I mean, it's it's a weird way of coming around, I guess.
1: Yeah. And my daughter is transitioning into using a computer now. And it's been interesting to watch her sort of struggle with how to use a keyboard and how to use a mouse it's quite the experience
0: oh god that's so crazy that's so crazy so you said that you fell into the kind of career so tell us us a little bit about you went to grad school and then you became a technical writer and then you became a content strategist how does this all work out
1: yes so i fell into technical writing when i was in indiana looking for a job in a small town where my husband and i were going to live and There was one tech company, and in Indiana in the early 2000s, I guess, not too many people <laughs> there were technical writers, so they had to be trained if they were going to have any technical writers, which I was very fortunate in that I was, got to be one of those people. I had demonstrated experience okay. in writing, a technical aptitude, and that was enough. Oh, that's cool. And then from there, um, I went to... Um, Silicon Valley after two years. And it was an interesting experience, okay. actually, because huh. the experience of technical writing on the end of being in the middle of nowhere Indiana versus coming to Silicon Valley and working on what you know, everyone would probably say is cutting edge software and technology. In this case, it was network routing. It went from pretty amazing. So this is where I'm going to get really geeky and technical writing related stuff is with the very first job I had, we were writing in an XML docbook implementation using Astoria. We were using, mm. I believe it was called Epic Editor at the time. Now maybe PDC, ArbiturX okay. at some point has gone through all these iterations. And it was an amazing setup, mm. actually. And we published into uh, HTML, PDF, books, CD-ROMs. Then I went to Silicon Valley two years later to work at a mm. company called Redback that was, was then acquired by Ericsson for network routing, and I was working with very, very senior technical writers who Mm. were used unstructured frame and wrote books, and I mean books, and I was confused because I'd been taught how to write (laughs) what is, why use, how to in this very structured way, and all of a sudden, I was having to learn FrameMaker, and and if I wanted to add content, somebody was like, don't touch my book. It's mine. This is yours over here. You're allowed to use that one. I'm like, what? what are you talking about what is this weird technology like nobody uses books anymore it's all html
0: (laughs) and in silicon valley no less
1: yeah i was shocked and then i came to learn many years later that this is very standard actually or was until even maybe a few years ago and it's interesting to watch the progression of silicon valley technology too and technical writing specifically after that i went to create my own doc department um and did an XML, which was really Knife. similar to what we did in the original first job I ever had. It was a very data like implementation, but that was before did had happened. Then after mm. I did that, and I went to goodness, I, I went through multiple rounds of startup acquisition, startup acquisition, startup acquisition. So I got very good at starting hmm. something and then integrating it into a larger organization, starting something again and integrating it into a larger organization. After that, it all gets a bit murky until the most recent job I had, where I was working at a company called Encorda. It was a data analytics company. And actually before that, the reason that I was able to implement a markdown was because I learned about Markdown when I worked at Adobe. So the last acquisition I went through was through a small startup called LiveFire into Adobe. And we started out writing the content in WordPress at LiveFire. And then when we got to Adobe, I was like, please tell me you have something else better. (laughs) And uh, they do, but it wasn't as good as (laughs) I was expecting. So that's an interesting thing. It just turns out that when you have a lot of small companies that are acquired by a larger company, they don't actually all get integrated right away. So some people were using data, some people were using um, AEM, specifically Hmm. the AEM team. That was on the marketing side of the house. So I got to write in a little bit of everything, and then the director there, who was doing an amazing job of all of the technical writing on on that side of of Adobe, was pushing to put everything in DITA and get everything migrated and, and transferred over into a nice structured implementation. So for five years, he had worked to push this through. And by the time I was there, it was finally starting to happen. Mm. But right at the last possible second, before we were about to switch right over to XML, to then AEM, a new vice president came on board who was very passionate about Markdown. He had come from Microsoft, (laughs) right? Well, he came from Microsoft and at Microsoft, they had written a lot of the technical documentation in Markdown and then had created an opportunity for developers and other people to contribute to the documentation. Using Markdown because it was relatively easy to download the latest Git repo and then make your edits and then submit the pull request to Microsoft and then have contributions. Which I, by the way, later yeah. met somebody at LavaCon this past year who said that they worked at Microsoft and the backlog of pull requests was kind of insane. So I don't know how they managed that, but, <laughs> but that was the goal at Adobe as he came and he implemented that. And because he was a vice president, he had the wherewithal and the um, authority mm. to really drive that. So whatever my boss had done for five years was able to be implemented relatively quickly in a markdown format and i saw markdown as a wave of the future in a way data is still important it's got semantic hmm. tagging Docbook certainly if you don't use data is super important with semantic tagging um, but markdown has a lot of appeal because when i'm working with startups i see a lot of developers who want to use something lightweight um, they want to use free tools They want to be able to contribute. Often startups start with thinking they need a technical writer, but they also still want to kind of write the documentation or be involved in the documentation process. Mm. So, this is a very appealing way to get up and running. So, my last job, I implemented that. Where what I have had, one of the things I've seen in my career is just having the breadth of experience of seeing how many companies and many departments do things different ways, which I think has uniquely Mm. positioned me to see. What are some of the advantages and disadvantages of specific tools and implementations of different technical writing, um, I guess, tools, really? So the the different implementations of like XML and Markdown and outputs, all of these things have impacts when you integrate from a small company to a Mm -hmm. large company, when you migrate content. And yeah, it's, it's an interesting world. And I've had some very interesting experiences.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. And I mean, I want to talk a little bit more about this markdown versus XML thing, because I think that's a big thing that's going to be happening in 2020. And it's something I'm not exactly looking at right now, because we are in a data environment, and we're real happy with it. But we are looking at another tool set and looking at using static site generators, which are really... geared towards using Markdown and towards that collaboration. And I think some of the stumbling blocks that we have with some people and other teams that we've reached out to is that, oh, XML or, you know, that that, that piece of the puzzle is a little too difficult for people to implement um, as part of their tool set. And like I think you've said where, you know, Markdown, you know, you can use something like Visual Studio Code, which is a free editor for Microsoft and stuff like that. But it's it's interesting to me that like big companies like Adobe and Microsoft would be using Markdown because there's no you know, I don't think there's any consistency. There's no way to kind of check it. Like you said, XML is very semantic. So, um, and I don't think you could get that level of consistency and make sure that, you know, there's metadata is is done properly and that kind of stuff. Um, So can you talk a little bit about the difference there in your experiences? Absolutely. Um, So
1: definitely the advantages of Markdown from a simple point of view. And so when you're, you know, when you're thinking about what would I want to use. There's a few considerations. There's the technical writer consideration, which I, I think generally falls to the lowest priority of the pile. <laughs> it's, it's you know, what's easy for a technical yeah. writer and, and great for technical writer and saves costs for technical writer is still not necessarily the highest priority. But that being said, if you have to choose what's the best for the technical writer, XML pretty much wins every time. And data specifically. But the downsides of that are that it's kind of expensive to implement. You really can't just implement it out of the box. Many companies have ways of implementing XML that may or may not be fully true data that are really good. And I can think of like Flare as one. Um, There's a few others out there and I'm not even sure if they still exist now as the market has changed a bit, even since I last purchased tools that were um, data like. But the idea mostly being that you can do topic-based authoring with semantic tagging is pretty attractive for technical writers. That being said, you do need to have the support of a tools team to set that mm. up for you, at least initially, maintain it somewhat during the lifetime of using it, and then help with publishing and output at the end um, of that cycle. But if, you know, if, if mm. that, that is a way, and the advantages of Markdown, on the other hand, are very low-cost implement. Um, almost any engineer who is mm. used to front-end coding and you know um, HTML, CSS can implement a site using a lot of open-source tools. Right now, there's, of course, you can use Visual Studio Code, like you said, and Atom with Markdown, and those are you know free, which is of course huge appeal for the business. Mm. So that's Mark One again, you know, against XML Pro Markdown. Then the publishing to from Markdown to something else is relatively simple with things like Gatsby, DocuSaurus. There's many ways to render content from Markdown to HTML into a website or some right. other form. I think Markdown is also very extensible, very simple, which is a disadvantage for technical writers because of the semantic tagging loss, but is still able to retain mm. many aspects of the docs' code theories um, like XML. Right, right where you can still write in very small bite-sized chunks. You can organize it. You can reuse to some extent. And even at at LavaCon this year, I saw a really cool thing being done by the Oxygen guys that was a blend of Markdown with some DITA, which was pretty attractive. It looked like you could retain some of the semantic tagging in DITA Mm -hmm. and still publish with Markdown or render Markdown through DITA. I will also say, if you're thinking about migration from a migration point of view future or you know so if you're either going into markdown or from markdown it is so easy with markdown versus xml i've seen what happens when you try to migrate unstructured frame into structured content when you try to migrate one structured data implementation to another when you try to implement a structured data into markdown (laughs) even that's a bit messy but it's still less messy than anything that goes into data because data and xml and the semantic tagging creates a mess of content. You know, it's like UI input, or is it UI? Yeah, UI. UI control, something. yeah. Something UI control. Maybe that's it. Um, yeah, UI control and data. For example, like that renders however you want it to render. But if we wanted that to be bold at one organization and the other organization wants it to be a different one, then you really you're kind of stuck with you know the the scripting language and how you do that and then it might not always be perfect and then there's a lot of cleanup and it is an expensive thing to move out of data into did i should say maybe more so out. it well if you're going from data into like a more unstructured version like frame then it will be pretty complex and there's a lot of cleanup. but to mark down again it's not too bad
0: yeah at um years ago at my first job um we basically converted Well, we were at one point we were word then we were unstructured frame then some of us went some people went to structured frame and some people went to x metal and i had to clean up a lot of the conversion at the time from the mess that it was into actual ditta and i hated ditta for a long long time for that reason because it took a long time um and it, just, it was just a mess it was, but I was actually surprised when I started pitching it at our, at our, my current role, um, you know, we were in an unstructured world, we were using Adobe Robo help and there wasn't a whole lot of strategy or any, you know, a lot of thought put into it. So I was actually surprised that, moving to data or moving to that structured language um was actually an easy sell at, at my firm uh but it's interesting now because like you said with oxygen and there's you know there's lightweight data and there's m data which i think is maybe they were showing you but it's interesting too because oxygen and i'm sure lots of other uh, xml based tools do this too now they will oxygen can ingest markdowns and make it part of your part of your system so that's something I'm probably gonna be playing with in, in the next year, hopefully. Um, so that way we can get those people who are, you know, developers or like Markdown, or, you know, have a use for Markdown, we can get that in there. And I have to say that, you know, for, for shorter things like note taking, or interviews or stuff like that, I've really gone or probably even project planning, I've gotten out of Word, and I've used Markdown for that. But even based on that, I don't think compared to DITA that I wouldn't want to work in Markdown every day. And I think maybe because it's the writer in me or that that structure, the information architect in me that says, I want structure. I want consistency.
1: I think that for me, as, as I've worked with Markdown, I think that I, I originally thought it would just be a different code language sort of way of writing. But one of the things I see as an advantage of Markdown is still that being that even though it's not structured in itself, the page itself, the advantage of being able to write small topics is still available. And I really think that while there's more oversight mm. for users, if you've got a lot of and users being the technical writer users, um, the technical writers are usually at this point, I think, trained fairly well how to write markdown not Markdown, but in a topic-based authoring sense, because most technical Mm. writers now, I think, are using topic-based authoring. Mm. So as long as you keep that methodology intact, I think using Markdown is actually relatively straightforward. The thing that I find really confusing now is, Mm. is, and this is just kind of what happens in organic organizations that don't have technical writers, but they write their own content until they can't anymore, is when there's... Mm you know, five or right. six product lines, most of the content overlaps, and then like three things don't, but they yet maintain, you know, the many different versions that they have. And I think that's where Markdown is an easy sell, because data might not be the easiest sell yet, but that in between state between this mess of maybe mm. Word documents or Google Docs or Confluence sites or whatever into Markdown is still a huge savings of time and energy.
0: I guess one of the things I'm curious about, too, is, you know, um, I've never worked for a startup, but um, I'm curious, you know, because you talk about, you know, they always bring us. Uh, my assumption is that they bring a tech writer in probably at the very last moment because they don't want to pay for that. And then they have a mess of content or stuff like that. Can you I mean, can you confirm or deny that um, documentation is pretty a much a mess in a startup until someone comes in and makes it right?
1: Uh, it's so funny that you say that. I was actually going to write an article on this in, near, in the near future on Medium because I, I see, I my specialty is certainly working with startups, starting departments at startups, and they almost always bring someone in too late, and 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 certainly the last minute if if you're lucky. <laughs> I think what what usually happens, or what seems to have happened, is a product starts and. You know, they're usually it's a proof of concept in the beginning, and they're not. A lo- there's not a lot of attention to anything except for trying to make it work and trying to get a customer and seeing you know, if you can make that happen. Then over time, it adjusts, and you get more developers in, maybe some user experience people, if you're lucky, right. um, product managers. You know, you start to fill it in, and then all of a sudden, they're like, "Well, crap! We need. You know, we have more users, and we're starting to go." And this is of course for enterprise software more than consumer, because that's where I tend to work. And you see, you see this. All of a sudden, oh no! We have big business customers that are, you know, we can't just handhold. Like, we, like, we'll, there'll be like a one or two anchor customers, for example, like a big name company, and that company will have been handheld through the process with customer success. Then over time, they start to branch into a more mid market or smaller markets. And they really need like self service for tech, for you know usually with a technical writer. And they try to accomplish this in various ways. Sometimes support writes articles. Sometimes engineers write articles. Um, but definitely there's a mess of content. And that I think is actually where a content strategist is more useful. And maybe people look for quote technical writers, but what they really need is a content strategist. They need someone who can come in and say, okay, you have so much content, you've You know, written this, you've put this here, you've put it in this place. We need to unify everything and put it in one location in this specific format. You know, what's your growth trajectory? Do you see more content being created? Do you see more releases or, you know, variable product lines? You know, and evaluating all of that so that you can grow it at the appropriate scale for the appropriate audience is a skill that is specific. And I don't know that every technical writer can handle that. Now, that being said, sometimes. They say they want a technical writer to come in and fix that mess, but what they really want is somebody to just come in, put their head down, and fix what the developers have written. So I think that's a tricky one, and I think it would be of a lot of startups to be able to understand what the problem really is and what they need, and then be open to suggestion. Uh, I think that there's this... Sometimes you'll say they need they'll say they need a content strategist, they want a technical writer. Sometimes they'll say they want a technical writer, they need a content strategist. So really understanding, do you need somebody to come in and clean up the big mess and then write? Or do you want somebody to just come in and write and fix? Because these are different things.
0: Right, and they absolutely are. And thank you for teeing up your medium content because that's something uh, that we wanted to talk to. So, uh, so nice segue there, Hannah. Um, but you have a site on medium.com and it's called Content Strategy Adventures. Um, it's by the pink haired content strategy, uh, content, the pink haired content strategist, um, which I would love to know what we need to know <laughs> a little bit more about the pink hair thing. But uh, before we do that, <clears throat> You wrote a a, um, a post on Medium in November right after uh, you went to LavaCon and you and I met, talking about uh, your experience there and how uh, – I guess the title is, is Content Strategy Replacing Technical Writers? Um, and it's a well-written – it's obviously well-written. It's thoughtful. Um But it's interesting that you're saying, you know, that startup companies don't know if they need a technical writer or a content strategist. And I think that gets further muddied because I believe that a lot of content marketing has kind of usurped the title of content strategy, too. So uh, curious about all your thoughts there.
1: OK, this is a lot to unpack, I'm sure. A lot to unpack for sure. So there is something called technical writing. Let me just start there. Technical writing Mm -hmm. as a discipline in my mind is primarily somebody who is given a feature set or a specific feature name or type or whatever. Then they research the feature and then they write about the feature. That's in the perfect world. And of course, in an established company organization where there's, you know, no need to sort of start from scratch. Let's just assume that best case scenario. Content strategy is used to describe a few different things. Content strategy is, as you said, used in marketing. And it's also used in um, kind of like a product context. And it can mean a couple of different things in the product context. Um, Sometimes UX writers, which is yet another word to Mm. uh, introduce, are also called content strategists or UX content strategists. They're also called UX content designers, content Mm. designers, UX uh, (laughs) writers, of course, and other things probably. Um, I've seen technical writing job posts be sort of a blend of many of these things. I think what, no, no, no. one of the things I'm diving into now in my career is learning more about what UX writing is. I find it really interesting because going back to the whole experience I've had with startups where they're involving technical writers too late, often they're ask of the technical writer, whether they're wanting to, them to write or even evaluate all of the content they have and fix it more or less is they want to, it, it, well, they want you to write about the product and not not from the point of the user. But they want they want they want that to happen, but they don't really know how to say the words like we want it from the point of view of the user. But what would even serve the user more is if they had involved a hmm. content strategist, UX writer, even a technical writer from the beginning, where that person could have evaluated the tool hmm. and said, Hey, if you put this interaction like this and you use these words, it's gonna confuse users. So an example that I, of something I worked on fairly recently at a company is the word bookmark was used. Bookmark meant saving a filter um, that you had created for Ugh. some kind of Ugh. entity. Um, That's a terrible term. And yeah, well, it even used the icon, right. It even used the icon of a bookmark that was used in um, a Web browser. Ugh. So very confusing. Oh, Lord. And this is an area in which if it involved a writer of any kind relatively quickly, and writers are, technical writers have been doing user experience more or less, or at least been the first people to see the user experience for many 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 years before user experience even a conversation right we were able to see from the user point of view the whole entire product whereas an engineer might only be working on a small piece and a product manager might be working a small piece and a marketing person doesn't see the whole piece they see the thing they want to sell and whatever whereas we would see mm. all of it for the first time ever before hmm. um, ux was a thing at least in my experience and if we If you involve that writer early and often, and they really do have the user in mind, and I would argue that most or all do, then they're going to be able to consult in a way that prevents you from having to write a lot of documentation at the end that is more or less useless in explaining the product. Because if if that word bookmark is confusing to users, then I have to spend time as a writer, a technical writer on that last end, explaining what a bookmark is and how it's different in this product. But the user just doesn't, they don't care what a bookmark is. They just want to know, how do I save my filter? (laughs) right yeah (laughs) (laughs) and that's kind of where content strategy overarches all of it in a way so content strategy i see as being this piece of how do we involve people from the beginning how do we unify the voice across the journey and how do we make sure that customers are seeing content in the beginning and in the end that makes sense for what they need and like how do we write about this in the technical writing traditional technical writing sense of like how to document how to use the product, et cetera. So there's several pieces there. I don't know if that explains it, but you tell me. <laughs>
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it does. But, you know, you're right. And this is what, you know, this is what drives me crazy. And I, I hate to say this, but it's this a theme I think I've had through my entire podcast is that there are too many t- freaking titles for what we do. And I think jobs and companies get confused and then they hire the wrong person because, like you said, they needed a technical writer, but they hired a content strategist or vice versa. So, you know, it's it's certainly, you know. I you know like I said and that's why I get pissed off about UX writing. It's like wait we've been doing this as technical writers. I've been doing this my entire career. Now you're saying that I you know that technical writer isn't. I think it's a branding thing. I think technical writers aren't hip anymore, and you have to be a UX writer or a content strategist or a content developer or a content engineer. And I feel like I'm doing all those and I'm doing all those damn things, and I'm still called a technical writer. So it's like you know it's 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 frustrating because. It's frustrating, but it's awesome because, I, you know, the fact that there's this many titles means that there's a lot of demand out there for content professionals. But, you know, from a business perspective, how do you know if you need a content strategist or an engineer or a developer or a UX writer or a UX designer or, you know, even someone else that you don't even know you need? It's it's that's where I get frustrated, uh, you know, with the job market in 2020.
1: Right. And I think at that point they should just call me up well, and say, well, right. hey pink hair content
0: strategist. (laughs) Hey, I I heard you do these things. Um, So, you know, let's, let's let's talk about that a little bit too, is that, you know, you seem like you've been putting stuff out on Medium. Uh, What's your experience with that been like? Because I, you know, I don't blog anymore because I do the podcast, which was my my entire goal. Um, But I've also thought about, you know, putting some of the stuff I have on Medium. Have you found that a good experience? Um, Have you gotten traction there? You know, I
1: find that, medium is simply a good place to put down thoughts that are relevant to a specific mm. area and just a career choice so i read medium articles on mm. all kinds of things they tend to be pretty niche so you know technical writers are going to read the technical writing okay. ones content strategists maybe right they di- differentiate themselves as a content strategist um different um they'll read their own versions there's a lot of ux writers the specific like entity that is more related to UX and writing um, that gives us a lot of medium publication. For me as a publisher on medium, it's not really a been any different other than that the audience is a little larger, which I think is pretty cool.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Cause I, I was always been mixed obviously cause I have my own site with my own blog. So it's like, why do I want to put my stuff on there for free or let them aggregate it or, you know, whatever they do with it. I like owning my content, but you know, I've, I don't know. I mean, I guess you're right that there's a much more critical mass of people than trying to get people to come to my site specifically for for content without even, you know, I guess you have to know that I'm there in order to find my content, essentially, where with Medium, I guess that's less of an issue.
1: Exactly. It's... You know, and when you write on your own blog posts, you, you totally, which you totally can do. You have to market it on your own, and then somebody has to go directly to that site for that information. Then, if they go to Medium, on the other hand, they get all of the content related to technical writing in one area, or something you know, similar mm. publications, other things. A person has written that may or may not be related. It goes into some interesting areas. I like it. I like Medium for both reading and writing. I oh, cool.
0: Okay. So I guess, you know, going back to your story um, and, was, you know, you're asking is content strategy replacing technical writers, but it kind of sounds like, you know, kind of what I was saying is that maybe it's just simply a rebranding. Is that kind of what you're getting at or? I think,
1: no, I think it goes deeper. I see, okay. oh, I see a content strategy being more of an umbrella term. Um, I think it does encapsulate in its, in the truest, purest form, content strategy is like any discipline related to content, period. So that could include marketing, it could include technical writing, it could include UX writing. But I do think technical writing mm. and marketing and UX are kind of converting in different ways. So, and, and I would, I like to focus mm. specifically on technical writing and UX writing. I see these as the more product focused functions in writing. you're know, you using technical writing to write about a product or about how a user uses a product, and your UX writing is the writing inside of the product beforehand. This used to be all all one technical writing job. But what what I see happening now is UX writing, and I'm going to continue calling it UX writing to differentiate it from the very vague UX strategy word or UX content strategy, which is used a lot. But UX writing specifically is going... Is, is working inside a user experience discipline. So if you're going to be a UX writer, you have to know user experience principles and you have to be able to design almost like a typical, when you think of a UX designer, you have to be able to do that skill set as well. That's the differentiation between UX writing and technical mm. writing. So then UX writing to that end is before and during the product development time. And even though I believe technical writers should be more involved in this process and probably should do all of this, they aren't being utilized that way. What's happening in the marketplace seems to be Mm. this straight up line between before product, during before and during, which is UX, and then after, which is technical writing. And I see very, very Mm. little overlap on this. I see company is hiring UX writers to work with the UX team and the product team to create and develop words and voice and tone and brand, which makes sense for a lot of things. If you think about your typical consumer app and their onboarding experience, that whole product built-in experience is being written by somebody um, in the UX writing field, probably. But at the same time, technical writers, when you're talking to a startup about, or even just a company about Mm. technical writers, they're thinking about it like how do I write a manual or help content or whatever? And this is a specifically different thing from the words inside of the product. So I think in the past, Mm. technical writers, we did all of that. We wrote the error messages. I mean, or we fixed the error messages, Mm. but actually I think this is a a way, a way that we're becoming content professionals are becoming more important in a way, which I think is really good. And I think that, but I don't think that you have, and we don't have enough credibility, technical writers to do UX writing. Mm -hmm. And maybe vice versa. Because I think a lot of people from UX writing come to marketing. There is a lot of sort of fluff associated with it in my mind. (laughs) Because it's like, Hmm. how are you enjoying this experience? Whereas in technical writing, it's like, Hmm. this is the experience. (laughs) And it's pretty flat. For the most part, the voice doesn't change dramatically. It's pretty factual. It is pretty step-by-step, you know, because you don't want a lot of fluff in it. It's been trained out of me almost in some ways with technical writing. But the UX writing, you have to almost regain that skill set if you're transitioning from technical writing to UX writing. Right, right. And the UX writing... Oh, go ahead. Well,
0: that's interesting because I was just listening to... uh Yeah, the the Cherry Leaf podcast. um, He was talking about trends in 2020 and and saying basically the same thing, that UX writing is is much more of a marketing kind of thing. um, And you have to put that mindset on when you're writing UX, even though we used to do that as technical writers. I guess there's a a different kind of language that you have to use now for interface items uh, to be, I guess, more friendly or I guess because people don't use manuals or don't want to read manuals, I guess you have to have that marketing you speak to get people to use it, but also to instruct people kind of how to use it.
1: Exactly. I mean, if you think about, if you download an app like Spotify or Pandora or some other music app, if you have to go read a manual on how to use that app, like you're not going to oh, go forget it. it. Full stop. Like it's just not going to happen. So that's where UX writing really comes into play, is there's a whole set of consumer-facing apps that just can't even afford to have a manual. And I think the thing that right. seems to be happening, though, is that while we expect this user experience to be better and better in this way, we, you know, consumers eventually become the users of enterprise software. So as consumers graduate into <laughs> enterprise software mm. users, you know, First, you start out being like a you know, teenager, using your app, doing whatever. Then you get into being an actual professional in the workforce. And then you're using your enterprise software saying, well, why isn't the user experience better? Because I'm used to having this great user experience right. and onboarding and all this <laughs> other stuff and the words <laughs> are intuitive and whatever. You, know, you don't want to think. And if you have a choice between seven, eight, ten tools and one has a great user experience and another one has a terrible user experience, you'll pick the one with a good user experience. <laughs> so this is becoming more and more important in any enterprise software um, from that point of view. And it is, it is fluffy, and it also isn't always fluffy. There is some toughness to it. But like for example, error okay. messages, if you look at Slack, they have error messages, and they'll be like, oh, sorry, it's our fault. And mm. you know, it'll use this very like conversational tone, which sure, that's a bit of a skill on its own, in its own way. But writing that error message in a way that's easy to understand, that's something that technical writers have always done, will continue to always do. And I think we'll continue to be really good at it. Mm. And there are some error messages that maybe need more of a factual tone. And in enterprise software, that is still the case. And it will be the case for a long time, and in the developer documentation, that will be that's the <laughs> case, and it will continue to be the case. That's why I see technical writing moving more towards this sort of technical mm. area, this being developer-focused, developer documentation, API documentation, highly technical mm. content, um, mm. very complex systems, things like you know how to operate heavy machinery. All of this being very critical to have technical writers write, but it being like less important from that upfront product experience um, and the user experience. So these are where we have diverged.
0: All oh, really awesome points. So, um, you know, it's, it's, tw- it's the beginning of 2020. It's a new year, uh, arguably, depending on how you compute it. It's a new decade. What are you looking up to? Uh, what are you looking towards this year? What are you kind of focusing on this year, Hannah? What are you thinking about?
1: What am I thinking about? Personally or professionally?
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, let's go with, <laughs> let's UX go with professionally.
1: Well, I, I'm really intrigued by this um, UX writing area and how it's different from technical writers. Mm-hmm. I think, from a professional point of view, I would like to see technical writers learning the skill of UX writing and UX writers giving credibility to those technical writers who have not necessarily always had hmm. this fluffy experience. But dang it, we're technical, and we know what we're talking about, and we're awesome, and we have been advocating for that user, and we have <laughs> similar common goals. So I'd say, yeah, exactly. Amen. I've like, see more credibility to the technical writers. You know, I have got to say, I am very tired of hearing, oh, well, you're just a technical writer. You don't really know any Okay, Maybe say this, but it's definitely yeah. implied sometimes. You're just a technical writer. What do you know? It's like actually, I know a lot. I've been hmm. sitting here watching your organization do its product <laughs> development for a long time, and I've seen how some people do it well and some people don't. I can yeah. tell you how you do it well, and I don't. Just saying. Anyway, um, also, <laughs> um, we love users. We're just good. Like all partnering together. I think the more people can be collaborative, the more they can understand that they benefit each other, especially the content professionals the better everybody's user experience is going to be. And that's really the bottom line. We care about the user. That's it. And we're not trying to make technical writers be amazing, even be great with they're to have mm. fabulous credibility. But at the same time, we're not trying to make UX writers be more important either. We all have a role. It's all important. And we should be helping each other out and acknowledging that. Mm. And I think that's why well, I'd like to see a lot more of that.
0: All right. Let's bring the world together in 2020. I love it that's, you know, it's a kumbaya moment. Love it. I love collaboration. it. And it makes sense. It, it. it absolutely makes sense. Instead of, you know, we're, we're all in this together, you know, especially if you're working on the same team or adjacent teams, you know, we're, we're all doing the same role. Let's, let's make sure that we're on the same page and doing it to correctly and doing it together to put our, you know, our, our firm's best, best foot forward, essentially.
1: Exactly. And another quick note on this. Um, I did recently hear a great podcast, like, can't remember for the life of me which one it was, but it was talking about UX writing versus technical writing in a way that I thought made a lot of sense. And technical writing was sort of the edge cases. So while UX writing might focus on the sort of main case, there's going to be all kinds of people who don't fall into the main case. And I think that's another important piece to remember is there's always going to be a need to write about how a product works on the edge cases and how to use something on the edge cases you know what happens if you click this button and then go back and then click this button again and then you know you get lost and you know their billing cycle is messed up or whatever you know there's some always some hmm. need for writing content for from the user point of view that is not inside of the user interface and it is important
0: still hmm. good point so let's talk about 2020 in a personal side and say you know so I don't, you know, we, we haven't really gotten to know each other that well, but I'm just curious, you know, what do you, you know, my question for everybody at the end of the show is, you know, what is it that you talk about and what is it that you do when you're not talking about content and content strategy and UX writing? Tell us a little bit about, you you know, your, your downtime.
1: Downtime? I have children. Okay.
0: Your non-work time? <laughs> I don't, I, I have kids though. So... <laughs> that, 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 that work-life balance part that's. Geared towards life more? I, I don't even know how to put it anymore in 2020.
1: <laughs> I like to knit. I am an avid knitter. Oh. And sewer.
0: That seems that, that, you know, I was on a, you know, I had Sarah O'Keeffe on and we called it the TechCom knitting, knitting Cabal And it seems like there's a ton of knitters in the TechCom community. So it's interesting to hear I that am, you're another. I'm
1: guilty. I, uh, back in the, <laughs> back in the day, my first job got at least four of my coworkers workers to that were all technical writers or technical editors to start writing or not writing, <laughs> knitting. <laughs> they already wrote, <laughs> they just started knitting with me. And I have since found mm. a lot of my people inside nice. the technical writing community. So it makes sense. It's a little bit creative, but also very structured. We like structure and creativity.
0: I don't know what to tell you. That's an excellent point. I never thought of that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> anybody who likes things that are structured and somewhat creative and, you know, will probably enjoy knitting. So mm. if that falls into engineers or UX people or I guess everyone to some extent. <laughs> Maybe in the tech community. Oh, interesting. That's interesting.
0: Huh. That's funny because I like food for the same reason. It lets me be creative, but you're right. It's structured. The cooking is structured. You have a recipe or you have you know, certain way to do things. So that's really... Interesting, the way to think about knitting.
1: Yeah, and it increases hand-eye coordination, which means I can catch balls and throw balls, and I wasn't able to do that before <laughs> with accuracy. <laughs> with accuracy, let me let me say, I could throw them, I just wouldn't throw them in the correct location, and I would try to catch them, and I was not successful until after knitting.
0: See, maybe that was my problem in grammar school and in high school. I was a terrible athlete. Maybe it's because I didn't knit. <laughs>
1: Yes, you should knit. It's very good. And it increases agility. It's probably good for your brain in some ways that I haven't researched, but definitely it probably is.
0: Oh, interesting. All right. So those of you who are in the tech community or knitters, you have another amongst Woo-hoo. you.
1: Knitting, knitting.
0: <laughs> and you have two children, so that must be keeping you uh, busy.
1: Just a little bit. It's been fun watching them interact with technology, though. And I have such anxiety about watching them interact with technology, too. Because it's like, this is your time for your brain to expand and develop. But the future is also technology. So do I give you more experience with technology? Do I not give you more experience with technology? I don't know. Mm. Struggle. but.
0: Well, that must be, I mean, I, I'm, you know, as, I'm not a parent, but I can imagine that struggle is, is, is real everywhere, no matter where you're a parent, but it must be much more apparent or much me, I guess maybe a much more uh, prescient topic of discussion in Silicon Valley in that area.
1: But it's certainly a conversation here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. So Hannah, where can we find you online? I know actually, you know, we, before we wrap up, your name is the pink haired content strategist. And it's funny because when we met, we were in a bar with lights and I couldn't see that your hair was pink. And then you're like, oh, I'm the pink haired content strategist. I'm like, oh, I saw you when the lights were normal and your hair is pink. So is that a branding? Is that a branding choice? Is that, I mean, you know, tell us a little bit more about how you came to be that, per- became the, be- the pink haired content strategist.
1: Well, I, I had pink hair. Um, Fair. I like pink as a color. Okay. My This is actually quick story here. My daughter, when she was four, loved pink because most girls apparently at that age, if they've been in any kind of social context, somehow end up loving pink and purple for at least a period of time. My daughter now hates pink. But at that time, I got really excited and was like, yay, pink, uh, i do it too. At some point, I dyed my hair pink. It seemed to be a natural fit. I kept it that way. It's now been this way for years. So then I was looking for a way to differentiate myself among many content strategists. And I just was like, hey, I think hair, okay, why not? So I just put that out there and here I am.
0: Nice. So, I guess, you know, how do we reach you online with the pink hair? You know, why don't you tell us a little bit about where we can find you on various social media, your website, etc.? Sure.
1: I am on Twitter. That's probably the fastest way, pinkhaircs, also medium. Okay. I think it's pinkhair, pinkhaired content strategist, pink hair, at pinkhaircs, same thing. And LinkedIn, it's Hannah Kirk because that's my name. And I also have a brand underneath that of a Pinterest <laughs> content strategist. You will see that if you look me up on LinkedIn.
0: Awesome, awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. This was awesome. This is a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, good getting to know you a little bit better and uh, learn about your experiences online. Yeah, so. so thanks, for, having thanks me. for your time, Hannah. <clears throat> Yes. And you can find me um, at Ed Marsh on Twitter. That's always the fastest way to reach me because I'm almost always on Twitter. Uh, of course, edmarsh.com. com. And just a heads up for the next couple of months. I'm going to have a busy few months. Um, in February, I'll be presenting a webinar um, for the STC IDL SIG, if you're a member of that. It's um, how to add value as a technical communicator, which uh, starting off the year, that should be really important. Uh, I believe it's the STC Denver chapter. I'm doing a um, a webinar on podcasting for them uh, in March, and I don't remember the exact dates, but you can find out on my website or through their respective websites. And I will also be presenting at the STC Philadelphia Metro Conference do it conference again this year uh excited for that one it's always a great conference to go to um it's always intimate it's in a great place in philadelphia so um if you're going to be going to any of those um you know feel free to say hi or uh you know we'll, we'll see you online so go out there and create some great content thanks hannah
1: Thanks Ed. Oh my god, I was so nervous.